The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning, Restoration Southside. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. We have the privilege of closing our study of the book of Hebrews, as this is our last text And it's a beautiful and encouraging word for us, especially in times like this. Because as the author will point us to, he wants us to lift up those around us, even those who have fallen. So as we turn to this final text, would you pray with me and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would, even through our computer screens and TVs, that you would move powerfully in the hearts of your people to convict and to encourage and to motivate us to live lives for the sake of others. We need you this morning. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. One of my all-time favorite movies is called Little Miss Sunshine. It's this beautiful story about a family that's broken and dysfunctional, but they're trying to hold it together. They're trying to continue moving forward. One of the characters in the story is a teenage boy named Dwayne. Dwayne's whole life is about being a fighter pilot. He wants to join the Naval Academy And until he reaches that goal, he takes a vow of silence. So Dwayne's not speaking throughout the first portion of the whole movie. Steve Carell's in the movie, and he plays Dwayne's uncle. At one point, they're in the famous Little Miss Sunshine bus, and his sister Olive is showing him flashcards. And it starts to become apparent that Dwayne can't see colors. And so Steve Carell's character sort of It's hitting him all at once, and he says, they don't let people who are colorblind become pilots. In this sad moment where this kid's dream is coming apart in real time, that he's shocked to know that he's colorblind, and he's shocked to know that his whole life has been built around this dream of becoming a pilot so much that he's taken a vow of silence to get there, and he loses it. He starts screaming and wailing and crying. They have to pull the car over. His life has just fallen apart and he runs out of the van cursing. And he goes and sits by himself and the family just watches him. Watches him fall apart. Finally, without any words, Olive the star of the movie, this wonderful little girl, comes down to meet him and sits next to him and puts her head on his shoulder and says nothing. He's so comforted by this that he takes a second and he breathes and he says, okay. And he comes back up the hill and rejoins his family. The reason that I love that scene so much, it's a beautiful picture of what the church could be like. 
that when people's lives and dreams fall apart, that we can be the ones to encourage them, to lift them up even if they've fallen down. Friends, we need that from one another and we need that for those who don't yet know Jesus. What if we as a church are those that would lift others up even when they fall down? You see, we all fall down. But as a church, we must learn to encourage one another and pick them back up. Let's look at the text together. This is from Hebrews 13, starting in verse 12. It says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction to the very end. It says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on by, towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, if we're going to be anything, we need to be encouraging of one another. You remember this audience is a group of struggling Christians who are being persecuted and the author is writing to them saying, you need one another. You need to encourage each other. You need to lift one another up when you fall. He doesn't want them to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. He wants them to care for one another, to encourage each other, to challenge each other gently and respectfully when someone falls. James Boyce writes a commentary on John. And in it, he's talking about how Jesus models for us serving others and washing their feet. Boyce says this in his commentary on his verses, Harry Ironside points out that if we are going to wash one another's feet, we ought to be careful of the temperature of the water. You would not go to anyone and say, here, put your feet into this bucket of scalding water. Nor would you ask him to place his heel in a bucket of ice water. It's just as bad to not, to be it's just as bad to be too hot in approaching another person as it is to be too cold and formal. Stedman writes and he points out that in trying to cleanse others some Christians do it without water at all. They try to dry clean feet. They scrape them free of dirt and unfortunately sometimes they take the skin with it. Instead of thus we who are spiritual ought to approach the other person meekly and in great love. One of the ways that we encourage each other is to help each other battle sin, to help each other stand back up when we've fallen. And boys here in Ironside point out that if we're gonna do that, we need to do it with a spirit of meekness and gentleness, encouraging one another and spurring them on towards love and good deeds. Part of why we're so afraid to be vulnerable and honest is because we think we're gonna get mistreated in our brokenness. What if the church, what if Restoration Southside was a place you could come in needing help with your sin battle and knowing that you were gonna be dealt with meekly and gently, that there wasn't gonna be any too hot, too angry, or too cold and distant, 
It's, nobody was going to try and hurt you. They were going to try and help you. The author is saying here, if you are going to make it together as a church, you must encourage one another. You must spur one another on. You must deal with each other meekly and gently. I want you to come to Restoration Southside with your wounds. There are other people that so desperately need you to share your wounds. What I see as a pastor happens so often is someone has a, a sin struggle or a suffering struggle and it, it's so painful and it's so difficult and maybe it's even so embarrassing going through it. And then a year goes by, maybe six months, maybe several years, and then God starts nudging that person to go and use their wound for the sake of others who, have, who are now bearing that burden. And God does that all the time. We need your wounds here for the sake of others. So don't be afraid to share them. In one of the churches that I was a pastor, one of the lay singers on the worship team had fallen back into an old sinful habit. It had sort of come out publicly and he was afraid that he should no longer contribute to the worship team by singing. And he said, I wonder if I should stop singing and serving in the church because of this sin. Now, this guy was confessing his sin, repenting, seeking help and restoration and counseling. And he's asking me if he should stop singing. I texted him back, of course you can sing. No one up there has had a sinless week. I wanted him to know that he is loved and accepted and welcomed among us despite his sin. Because when I sin, I'm going to need him to gently wash my feet. When he sins, he needs us to gently wash his feet. We should have empathy for the people that we're loving and serving because we need them to have empathy for us when, it's, when we fall down. Encourage one another. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And he says, not just that, but meet together. Meet together. He says it right here. <clears throat> Do not, let us not give up meeting together. As our some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, come and meet together. Now, obviously, during COVID-19, that's not something that we can do, at least physically. But we still need to continue doing it spiritually. And we can do it socially, through our technology, through gathering outside in the appropriate numbers and taking all the appropriate precautions. But what he is saying to this church is, you can't make it on your own. Your life, your story is more difficult than you yourself can take it. Meet together. That's what will remind you and comfort you and spur you on is when you see other Christians struggling through their stories and you're still gathering to meet. The reason that I tell you this is because it's been common for 
my generation and those younger for church to be some sort of uh, wonderful option when you can get to it. We've got wedding weekends and we've got uh, work trips and we've got uh, getaway weekends with our friends. And yeah, when, all, when none of that's going on, then I'll make church a priority. Now, in the text, he's addressing Christians who will be persecuted if they show up together. And so they say it's easier to just not get caught. If I'm not there, I won't get caught. But for us, the application is, how much do we value corporate worship? How much do we value each other's presence in each other's lives? One of the beautiful things that COVID-19 has done for us, even though it's been very tragic and difficult, is that we miss each other. We know that we need each other's presence. And so let God use this in our new young church to fuel us to love getting together. When we gather again for worship, in our homes, at prayer meetings, knowing one another, that we're supposed to prioritize worship, prioritize corporate getting together because it encourages us and it sustains us. And he says, do it all the more as you see that great day approaching. I love when I walk through worship and see all the faces and all the stories and all the things that I know that are going on in the background and yet people are still coming and they get their rear ends in their seat and they show up. What they're doing is communicating, I know I don't have it all together, but I am still welcome in God's house. And by one of them doing it, it communicates to another who's doing it, it communicates to another who's doing it, that we all need this. So we encourage one another, we spur one another on towards love and good deeds with gentleness and meekness, and we continue to meet together. And then he says this, follow your leaders, verses 17 through 19. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order so that I may be restored to you all the sooner. I know it seems like a uh, self-serving text for a pastor to preach to say, obey your leaders and submit to them. But what the author to the letter of Hebrews, uh, author of the letter of Hebrews is saying is God will call people to come and care for you and shepherd you. And it's saying, let them do their job. Support them and encourage them and let them do their job. It is the way that God has ordained for you to be cared for. And so, yes, it feels self-serving for me to say, but for me and the leadership of this young church, let us lead you. When I ask you how you're doing, you can be honest with me. I want to know what you're struggling with. When I ask you to serve and to give your life away, follow us so that we, as God's people, can be the new kingdom on earth advancing Jesus' name all over. 
One of my clearest memories in Houston, I was the pastor of congregational care and I was, service was about to start and I was standing in the back and the people had gotten their seats and I was just standing and scanning the room, seeing all of the stories, the singleness, some of the loneliness, the tense marriages, the addictions, the suffering, the cancer, and I was just sort of scanning the room because I know the stories. Sort of wondering who needed an extra encouragement that morning? Who needed a hug? Who needed me to follow up with them that week? One of the young adults came up to me and said, you know what? You look like a lifeguard on a stand. Sort of scanning to make sure that no one is drowning. That stuck with me because that's what Ben and my job is. That's what your leaders, the men and women who will be called to care for you, that's what our job is, is to make sure that you're okay. To make sure that you'll be cared for. To make sure that you don't let your heart give in to sin and become hardened to your sin. And so what it's saying is when the leadership of a church cares for you, Make it a joy for them to do so. I can say, honestly, it is my joy to care for you. I love doing what I'm doing. You make it a joy for me. But even as we grow, even as there are new people around that you don't know as well, even as there are things that the church decides to do that you're not as sure of, what it's saying is put Jesus in front of your own preferences and to follow leaders that God has called to together not just one person, together lead you. So as he's closing his conversation to the church, he talks about encouraging one another, spurring one another on, being present together. He talks about following your leaders. And then he encourages us to be worked on and be worked through. Be worked on and be worked through. Let me explain to you what I mean. He says this in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As he comes to this conclusion of this beautiful power pastoral level pastoral letter where he's looking at them and saying hold on hang on don't give up cling to each other cling to the reality that Jesus has made all things new and will continue to do so he says now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you do you hear what he's doing? He's called them to love. He's called them to persevere. He's called them to cling to one another. He's called them to fight their sin. And they may be tempted to fall back and say, it's too hard. We can't do all of this. We are not up for it. We are not game for it. And you might feel like that. God, I'm trying to battle with my addictions, but I'm not up for it. I'm trying to be a softer parent 
but I'm failing. I'm trying to be better to my spouse, but I can't seem to get it right. I'm trying to live more missionally, but I just can't seem to do it. And he's taking a group of people who are feeling like, I can't do it. And he's saying, but God will. God will move. And in fact, he'll move through you and he'll move in you. It's this beautiful thing that he's saying, because Jesus has done it, you can go do it. Because Jesus has done it, you can go do it. He's taking resurrection power, the Father bringing Jesus back from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant, that great shepherd of the sheep, and he's saying, the person who's calling you to act is the one who vanquished death, who took all of our sin and obliterated it on the cross. That's the person that you can have confidence to get it done. And he's saying, so even though you feel weak, may the God who is powerful, may the God who conquers over even death, conquers over sin, conquers over suffering, may the God who will get it done equip you. Now, that does for us a couple of things. One, it humbles us because we know we can't live godly lives without being connected to Jesus and without each other. It's God that does the equipping, and He does the equipping primarily through the local church. We need each other, and we need to be dependent on Jesus. And so it's humbling, and at the same time, it's empowering. Can you imagine that we're supposed to have this attitude towards life in this world that we will make it despite corona, despite losses, despite sin, that He will equip us for everything good, for life and ministry. He says, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. He's saying, not only did God do all of that by vanquishing death, and now God Himself is going to equip you. I want, that, I want you to hear that as grace. He knows it's hard to love and encourage each other. He knows it's hard to fight sin. He knows it's hard to continue to gather together even though we're distracted. He knows that life is difficult. And yet he's saying, I will get it done. I will get it done. I will equip you. I will equip you. It's God's kind, fatherly hand on the back of our shoulders saying, keep moving. I've got you. Keep moving. Remember, I've already done all this. I have got you. And it's so that you can be worked on and others can be worked on through you and so that God can be brought the glory. You can be worked on, others be worked on through you and so that God can be brought the glory. You may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight to whom through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So he calls us powerfully to encourage each other, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, to meet together even when we're distracted. He calls us powerfully to follow the leaders that God has put in your life for they care for you. And then he calls us to be worked on and worked through for the glory of Jesus Christ. When I'm stressed and when I need to turn my mind off for a little bit, 
I often find myself reaching for uh, James Bond or Jason Bourne or Mission Impossible. It's just these stories about how some heroic person, despite all the odds against them, they will get it done. There's this one that's come out recently called Fallout with Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible. And Tom Cruise has all of the odds stacked against him. Ethan Hunt. He has to go catch up with a device and pull the battery out of it, pull the chip out of it, so that it won't set off nuclear devices. But the way that he has to catch up to it is to wreck one helicopter into another helicopter and then personally, physically fight this strong guy to get the remote. And of course, it was all happening on a cliff. Now, I want you to think about this. It's a Mission Impossible movie. So we know that it's going to turn out okay. You know when you bought the ticket that it's going to turn out okay. And yet you're there, clenched muscles, watching to the end as Tom Cruise battles it out and the, the screen goes to his two sidekicks. And he says, Ethan, if you can hear me, we need to defuse the bomb now. Ethan, come in. And Benji says, how do we know he's got the key? And Luther powerfully says, he'll get it. And Benji says, but how do we know? And Luther says about Ethan Hunt, he will get it done. It's this beautiful thing of this Luther has so much confidence in Ethan Hunt that despite all the odds being stacked against him, but despite how many difficulties there are, that Ethan will get it done. It resonates so deeply because as you face difficulties, it may not be a nuclear warhead or fighting someone on the edge of a cliff, but as you face difficulties, you're supposed to have that confidence that Luther does. My God will get it done. My God will equip me to walk this lonely path of singleness. My God will equip me to handle the difficulties of infertility. My God will sustain me in my difficult marriage. My God will sustain me through my throwing myself back into my addiction yet one more time. My God will sustain me through this COVID. My God will sustain me through this cancer. What it is saying is that after everything we've seen the Father do, the Son do, the Holy Spirit do, we're supposed to have live out of this sweet confidence that our God will get it done. You can count on it. Can you imagine what that would do for our church? If we operated out of the confidence that our God will get it done. That's what I want for us. So that we can love each other and encourage each other and spur each other on and continue to gather so that we can all follow Christ as he leads us. And so that we can bless the world and we can move towards the world and even ugly parts of the world with confidence because we know what? Our God will get it done. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you and I praise you that you will get it done. That it says here that you will equip us with everything we need. You didn't just save us and then turn us loose, but you've saved us and now you'll equip us and you'll sustain us. I pray that you'll help those in the room who feel like they're on their own, that they will remember again that their God will see them through. I pray for those of us who have lost track of the fact 
that God will equip us and we feel undone by our sin. We feel undone by our suffering. And I pray, God, that you will help them to feel again that you will see them through. And Father, for those who don't yet know you, would you move so powerfully in their hearts that they actually begin to feel equipped? That things that once seemed impossible will now seem possible for them because they sense our equipping God in their heart getting it done. We thank you and we praise you for this encouraging word for this book of Hebrews. We ask God that you will help us to trust and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to throw ourselves at you and to live lives of joy and care for others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.